listen, while our host team is, uh, is passing the buckets, I want to set this morning up for us. Uh, this is going to be a different kind of morning for us here at Westridge. Uh, usually when you show up to Westridge, we sing some songs, we share some stories, we play some videos, and I teach for about 35 minutes. Uh, this morning, it was, it's going to be a little different than that, okay? Uh, we're in week six of Here to There, and today we are sharing what happened on the Friday of Jesus' last week here on the earth. And we want to share it with you in a very unique way, all right? So if you're a guest with us today, here's all I want to say to you. Enjoy the morning. I hope it encourages you. I hope you leave hopeful. But come back again, maybe like for Easter, and you can really get a picture of what a normal Sunday looks like here at Westridge Church. But I want to ask all of us to turn our attention and direction toward the stage and toward the screens and let's listen in on what happened on the Friday, Good Friday of Jesus' last week here on the earth. Jesus is bowed and bloody. 110 pounds of lumber is strapped across his shoulders. The weight of the rough wood proves too much as it grinds against the lacerations left by the Roman scourging. Pain explodes like light in Jesus' brain and he crumples under the beam. When he comes to, Jesus feels somehow weightless, and he realizes that the wooden crossbeam has been cut from his back. Another man is carrying it now, a dark man whose face he cannot see, but he does see the face of another. Mercifully, a Roman centurion bends and takes Jesus under the arm to lift him gently to his feet again. Jesus looks up, and he holds the soldier captive in his gaze. The victim's eyes do not pierce the centurion with the hatred he expects. Instead, he finds love in those eyes. Love mingled with pain. Yes, broken-hearted love, but love nonetheless. And not a love excited by one mere act of kindness. This love preceded the moment. This love preceded his existence. This love preceded the existence of the world. Somehow the centurion knows that these are the eyes of eternal love. Jesus holds the soldier's gaze as long as he can. But the blood that dripped off the ends of his hair to the ground when he was bent low under the cross now drops into his eyes. The blood mixed with sweat stings, and Jesus blinks. By this time, Jesus is familiar with that sting. But it was a new sensation on Thursday night in the garden. There in the garden, he walked with his friends, singing hymns and speaking quietly. They passed through the city gate and walked up the hill of Gethsemane through the olive trees. But there was only 11 friends with Jesus, not 12. One of the 12 had chosen to be no friend at all. Satan already held Judas, the betrayer, by the hand then, and now he had him by the neck. Judas, Judas hangs pale, gasping and swinging from the end of his belt under the limb of a tree. The flames of hell are already lapping at his feet. It would have been better if he had never been born. 11 remained then, but soon there would be none. Not one friend would stay. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will scatter. One would run terrified out of the garden naked, and the rest would follow. Jesus fell on his face in prayer. He tasted the dirt as he fought for the eternal destinies of his eleven sleeping sheep, just as stones throw away. Let the cup pass, he cried. Father, if possible, let this cup pass. The father gazed lovingly at his son, and the son stared back knowingly. Your will be done, Father, whispered the son. And the father held out the cup, 
And Jesus looked in, and what he saw there flung him into the throes of agony. He pressed his forehead deep into the dirt, which softened into mud when mingled with his tears. Jesus felt several small explosions of pain underneath the skin of his face. His tiny capillaries and his sweat glands burst under the stress, and blood flowed through his pores and dropped into his eyes, and it stung. Jesus lifted his head to the sky and he cried out, I will drink from this cup, Father. I will drink from this cup so that your glory may be vindicated and my name may be glorified. And so that the sheep that you have given me will see our glory and enjoy it forever. I will drink on behalf of our rescue mission. Just then, through blurry eyes, Jesus saw the line of torches slithering like a snake up the hill to the garden. The mob arrived. Judas kissed. Friends fled. Soldiers arrested, and Jesus' world became a swirl of torment and mockery. His trial was a sham as liars lied and mockers mocked. God claimed to be God, and it was called blasphemy. And the face that Moses longed to see, the face that he was forbidden to see, was slapped and spit on. More blood in the eyes, more stinging. As he was dragged from a high priest's house, Jesus managed a bloody-eyed glance at Peter. This friend ran from the garden. But this friend followed. And this friend had done the unthinkable three times. This friend denied the friend of friends. This friend denied the friend of sinners. He invoked a curse to lend credence to his denials. And now the cock crowed. And Jesus held Peter in the gaze of eternal love. But Peter looked away and he ran. Just outside the city gate, he stumbled and he fell to the ground, heaving sobs and considering joining Judas on his tree. But he pleaded to the Father for forgiveness instead. And the Father looked ahead a few hours into the future to Friday afternoon. And on behalf of what he saw there, he granted Peter the forgiveness that he requested. The governor of Judea was up early this cold, gray, wet morning. The city still slept as the priests and soldiers led Jesus to the palace of Pontius Pilate. But soon the priests would have a sympathetic crowd as the news of Jesus' arrest passed from house to house. They leveled their charges. This man forbids us to pay tribute to Caesar, and he calls himself a king. Pilate stared intently at Jesus. He questioned him, and he found no guilt. Neither did King Herod. So Pilate offered to release Jesus to the swelling crowd, but they chose freedom for the murder of Barabbas instead. Then what should I do with Jesus of Nazareth? Pilate shouted to the mob, and the mob thundered back, Crucify him! Crucify him! And their voices prevailed, and Pilate washed his hands and delivered the innocent one to death. Next, Jesus was stripped, and his hands were tied above his head to a post. A large, shirtless Roman legionnaire stepped forward towards Jesus, fondling a short whip. Several heavy thongs hung off the weighed handle down by the small balls of lead attached near the ends of each. The muscles in the legionnaire's back and arms bulged as he brought down the heavy whip with full force again and again and again across Jesus' shoulders, back, buttocks, and legs. The Jews would have been more merciful, no more than 39 lashes, but the Romans extended no such mercy, and the balls of lead yielded large, deep bruises. Then the bruises were eventually broken open by the endless blows. The thongs cut through the skin, and then they cut deeper in through the muscles. From behind, Jesus no longer looked human. His skin hung in long, bloody ribbons of tissues. Fearing they had gone too far and killed Jesus before it was time, the soldiers cut him loose, 
and he fell in an unconscious heap at their feet. And Jesus came too. He was forced to stand. A purple robe, not his own, was wrapped around him and clung to his open wounds. They made him, they made him hold a stick, a mock scepter, and now the king of the Jews needed a crown. One of the Romans picked up a thorn branch from a pile of firewood and braided it into a circle. Never did thorns compose so rich a crown, or so painful a crown. Another soldier took the scepter from the hand of the king of kings and beat the crown into his skull. Bloody sweat binded him, and his eyes stinging momentarily took his eyes off the pain in his back. But then the purple robe was torn from Jesus, and the ribbons of flesh that adhered to the cloth were ripped off with its removal. Each wound had a voice of its own sh to shriek its pain. And Jesus collapsed again. Now Jesus is dressed in his own clothes. And before the merciful centurion can move, Jesus along behind a dark man now carrying the cross, an old woman approaches and wipes Jesus' face with a linen cloth. Jesus looks her in the eyes and then looks to the crowd of weeping women behind her. And he says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. The days are coming when they will say, blessed are the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. And to the old woman, he adds, if these things, if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Then Jesus walks on beyond the city gate. It's nine o'clock in the morning, Friday. Through the steady rain, Jesus glances up from the base of a rocky hill. Its name is Golgotha, the skull. At the top, he sees several posts fixed in the ground. Three of the poles stand ready to receive their cross beams and the tattered body of Jesus and the two criminals carrying their crosses behind him. At the top of the hill, the merciful centurion hands Jesus a cup. Jesus sniffs the liquid. It's wine mixed with myrrh, a mild narcotic to dull the pain. But Jesus is meant to feel all the pain, so he hands the cup back. This is not the cup of the Father. A soldier strips Jesus again. His back is set on fire, his skin tears away with the cloth. Jesus now lays naked in the dirt. The dark man places the crossbeam by Jesus' head. This time Jesus sees his face. It's Simon of Cyrene. Jesus knows him by name and did before it was time. The beam becomes his pillow now. Two men take hold of his hands. The soldier on his left yanks his arm as far as it will go. But the soldier on the right is gentler. Jesus turns to him. It's the merciful centurion again. He picks up a cold spike and places it to Jesus' wrist. Then he picks up a hammer. Their eyes meet. Eternal love shines forth again, and the centurion is undone. He looks away and lifts his hammer. In that moment, Jesus hears his own word of power, the word of power that holds the merciful centurion in existence, the word of power that causes the hammer to be. He's speaking it all into being. The soldiers, the priests, the thieves, the friends, the mothers, the brothers, the mob, the wooden beams, the spikes, the thorns, the ground beneath them and the dark clouds gathering above him. If he ceases to speak, they will all cease to be. But he wills that they remain. So the soldier lives on. And so the hammer continues crushing down. Jesus is lifted on his crossbeam to the post. He sags, held only by the spikes in his wrist. Jesus designed the median nerves in his arm that are working perfectly now. The pain shoots up those nerves and explodes in his skull as the crossbeam is set in place. 
His left foot is now pressed against his right. Both feet are extended, toes down, and a spike is driven through the arch of each of them. His knees are bent. Jesus immediately pushes himself up to relieve the pain in his outstretched arm. He places his full weight on the spikes in his feet, and they tear through the nerves between the metatarsal bones. Splinters from the post pierce his lacerated back, searing agony. Quickly, waves of cramps overtake him, deep, throbbing pain from his head to his toes. He's no longer able to push himself up, and his knees buckle. He's hanging now by his arms. His pectoral muscles are paralyzed, and his intercostals are useless. Jesus can inhale, but he cannot exhale. His compressed heart is now struggling to pump blood to his torn tissue. He fights to raise himself in order to breathe in and out in order to speak. He looks down at the soldiers now gambling for his clothes. He pushes himself up through the violent pain to pray aloud, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Then he sags back into silence. But the crowd is not silent, though he can barely hear their taunts through the din of his pain. He saved others. Let him save himself. If you're the Christ, come down off the cross. Save yourself, King of the Jews. The criminal on the cross to his left joins the mockery, but the thief to his right repents. Jesus pushes himself up to him to say, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's noon now. The rain falls harder and the clouds blacken. Jesus looks down through wet strands of hair into the familiar face of a woman. A new pain grips him, greater pain than all the whips and spikes in the kingdom of Rome. It's his mother. She's sobbing so hard that her breathing is as labored as his. Without words, she looks into his eyes and begs to know why. He longs to hold her and to tell her that it's all for her. He pushes upward and says, woman. Then he looks at his friend John in the eyes. John is standing behind her, supporting his own weeping mother. He is now your son. Then to John, Jesus murmurs, and she is now your mother. Take her away from here. And he sags back into silence, back into countless hours of limitless pain. Then Jesus is startled by a foul odor. It isn't the stench of open wounds. It's something else, and it crawls inside of him. He looks up to his father. His father looks back, but Jesus does not recognize these eyes. They pierce the invisible world with fire and darken the visible sky. And Jesus feels dirty. He hangs between earth and heaven, filthy with human discharge on the outside, and now filthy with human wickedness on the inside. The Father speaks, Son of man, why have you sinned against me and heap scorn on my great glory? You are self-sufficient and self-righteous, consumed with yourself and puffed up with selfish ambitions. You rob me of my glory and worship what's inside of you instead of looking to the one who created you. You are greedy, lazy, a gluttonous slander, and a gossip. You are a lying, conceited, ungrateful, cruel adulterer. You practice sexual immorality. You make pornography, and you fill your mind with vulgarity. You exchange my truth for a lie and worship the creature instead of the creator. And so you are given up to your homosexual passions, dressing immodestly and lusting after what is forbidden. With all your heart you love perverse pleasure. You hate your brother and murder him with bullets of anger fired from your own heart. You kill babies for your convenience. You oppress the poor and deal slaves and ignore the needy. 
you persecute my people. You love money and prestige and honor. You put on a cloak of outward piety, but inside you are filled with dead man's bones. You hypocrite. You are lukewarm and easily enticed by the world. You covet and cannot have, so you murder. You are filled with envy and rage and bitterness and unforgiveness. You blame others for your sin, and you are too proud to even call it sin. You are never slow to speak, and you have a razor tongue that lashes and cuts with its criticism and sinful judgment. Your words do not impart grace. Instead, your mouth is a fountain of condemnation and guilt and obscene talk. You are a false prophet leading my people astray. You mock your parents. You have no self-control. You are a betrayer who stirs up divisions and factions. You are a drunkard and a thief. You're an anxious coward. You do not trust me. You blaspheme against me. You're an unsubmissive wife. You're a lazy, disengaged husband. You file for divorce and crush the parable of my love for the church. You're a pimp and a drug dealer. You practice deviation and worship demons. The list of your sin goes on and on and on. And I hate these things inside of you. I am filled with disgust and indignation for your sin consumes me. Now drink my cup. And Jesus does. He drinks for hours. He downs every drop of scalding liquid of God's own hatred of sin mingled with the white hot wrath against that sin. This is the Father's cup. Omnipotent hatred and anger for the sins of every generation, past, present, and future. Omnipotent wrath directed at one naked man hanging on a cross. The Father can no longer look at his beloved Son, his heart's treasure, the mere image of himself. He looks away. Jesus pushes himself upward and house to heaven. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Silence. Separation. Jesus whispers, I'm thirsty, and he's sad. The merciful centurion soaks a sponge in sour wine and lifts it on a reed to Jesus' lips. And the sour wine is the sweetest drink he has ever tasted. Jesus pushes himself up again and cries, it is finished. And it is. Every sin of every child of God has been laid on Jesus, and he drank the cup of God's wrath dry. It's three o'clock Friday afternoon, and Jesus finds one more surge of strength. He presses his torn feet against the spike, straightens his legs, and with one last gasp of air cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he dies. The, mer the merciful centurion sees Jesus' body fall forward and his head drop low. He thrusts his spear up behind Jesus' ribs, one more piercing for our transgressions, and water and blood flow out of his broken heart. In that moment, mountains shake and rocks split, veils tear, and tombs open. A merciful centurion looks up at the lifeless body of Jesus and is filled with awe. He drops to his knees and declares, truly this man was the Son of God. Mission accomplished, sacrifice accepted. What happened on that Friday, Good Friday, over 2,000 years ago, church, it, it was for us. It was for us. The Bible tells us in Romans 6.23 that there is a payment for sin, and the payment for sin is death. And that means that every single one of us in this room 
because we're sinful, imperfect people. What we deserve from God is to die. Not only physical death, which is the separation of our soul and our spirit from our body, but we also deserve to experience spiritual death, which is the separation of our soul and our spirit from God himself. Listen, what Jesus Christ did on that Friday, it it was for us. You see, all the beatings, all the scourgings, all the pain, all that Jesus went through physically at the cross, he died in your place and in my place for our sins physically. He experienced all that should have come our way because of our sin. He went through it for us. The Bible tells us in Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrated his love for us on that Friday in this, that while we were still sinners, that Christ died for us. Friday was for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us this. The Apostle Paul writes about that Friday, and he says that it was for our sake. You can see it there on the screens. That it was for our sake that he, speaking of God the Father, made him, speaking of Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. You see, Jesus didn't deserve to die. Why? Because he was sinless. He was perfect. He was holy. He had no reason to die. But he went to the cross on that Friday, and what Devin read just a moment ago represented what happened on Friday so perfectly. Jesus hung on that cross between heaven and earth, and the Bible tells us that at noon, the sky grew dark, and that God took every single bit of your sin and mine, those of us in the room who know Jesus, every believer in Jesus Christ who existed from the beginning of time to the end of time, God has taken our sin off of us, and at the cross, he put that sin onto his own son, and Jesus became our sin. So from noon on that Friday till three o'clock in the afternoon, God did not see Jesus any longer as his holy, perfect, righteous, sinless son. He looked at Jesus hanging on that cross, and he saw Jesus, the adulterer, and he saw Jesus, the murderer, And he saw Jesus, the guy who has anger issues. And he saw Jesus, the liar. And Jesus, the rapist. And Jesus, the pornographer. And Jesus, the lazy husband. And Jesus, the unsubmissive wife. He saw Jesus, the sinner. Jesus became responsible for our sin on that Friday so that God could pour out every bit of anger, every bit of punishment, every bit of hatred that your sin and mine required onto his son, Jesus. And we know that on that Friday from noon till three o'clock for three straight hours, Jesus suffered through what for the rest of us would be an eternity of hell. And he did it out of his great love for us. As Paul continues to write, it's because of what Christ has done for us that you and I can become the righteousness of God. You see, the beautiful thing about the cross is this, is not only did God punish our sin there, but he removed our sin from us at the cross. And at the cross, for every single one of us that knows Jesus, what the cross does for us is this, is it allows God to take off the sinlessness and the perfection and the holiness of Jesus, and God clothes us in those same things, which means if you know Christ as Savior and as Lord, 
that God the Father looks at you today just like he looks at his own son. He sees you not as sinner anymore, but he sees you as saint. He sees you as a holy person, a blameless person, a righteous person, all because of what Christ has done for you. Now, if you're in the room and you know Jesus, like if you've made a decision at some point to trust in what Christ did for you at the cross, it means a few things for you. Um, First, it, it means this. It means that you are free today. You get that, right? It means that you're free. You're free from what? You're free from sin and the power of sin in your life. Jesus Christ died on the cross to put your sin to death so that you can put your sin to death today. You're free. You're free from shame and you're free from guilt and you're free from condemnation. So for those of you who know Jesus but you tend to beat yourself up for past mistakes, you tend to live with regrets for the life that you have lived, listen to me, you're free from those things. God has already held Jesus responsible for all of your sins, all of your mistakes, all of your regrets, and you are free to let those things go today. God has let them go. Why can't you let them go? You're free from those things. It also means, and I've already alluded to this, that if you know Jesus today, you are more than just a sinner saved by grace. You know that, right? I grew up in a church, and I hear people say that, phrase all the time, bless God, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And while that is partly true, it does not tell the whole story of who you are in Christ Jesus. As I've already said, God does not see you as just some measly little sinner he saved. He now sees you like he sees his son. And that should free some of us up today. It also means this, finally, it means that you don't have to fear death. How incredible is that? Because Jesus has died for you, Death now becomes for you, if you know Jesus, a beautiful thing. Death becomes the door by which you enter into the very presence of God at the end of your life. So death doesn't have to be something you fear any longer. You can simply view death as your transition into the life that God created you and designed you to live. And again, church, listen to me. It's all, it's all due to what Christ has done for you what he did for you on Good Friday 2,000 years ago. Now, if you're in the room and you've never made the decision to trust Jesus as your Savior, like if you've never come to God and prayed and said, God, I believe in Jesus and what he's done for me, and I need my sins forgiven, and I need eternal life, here's the good news for you today. There's nothing that you have to do to earn God's grace and his love and acceptance Christ has already done everything necessary to earn it for you. So all you've got to do is come and ask God for his free gift of salvation and eternal life. How awesome is that? It doesn't matter how jacked up you are. It doesn't matter the life you lived. Like, it doesn't matter how far from God you feel at this moment in time. If you will simply come and ask God to forgive you of your sins through Jesus and to give you eternal life, he'll come through on his promise to do just that for you and you can walk out of this place this morning free hopeful about your future knowing how God sees you his son his daughter not fearing death any longer so if you need to make that decision I want to give you the opportunity to do that right now will you bow your head close your eyes with me I want us to pray together if you need to make that decision for the first time to trust Jesus as Savior and Lord to have your sins forgiven 
to come into a relationship with God, I, I just want to invite you to say something like this to him. Right now in prayer, in the quietness of your heart, just say, God, I know that I'm a sinful person. I know I'm imperfect. I know I've done some things in my life that can't be pleasing to you. But God, I believe that that's why you sent Jesus. I believe that when I deserve to die, Jesus died for me, in my place, for my sins. And God, this morning, I need you to forgive me of all of those sins. Not only the sins in my past, but also the sins that are gonna happen in my future. God, forgive me of all of those things. Make me a new person. Make me a blameless, holy person. God, and give me eternal life so that I don't have to fear death. God, I wanna know that when I die, I'm gonna enter into your presence and I'm gonna spend eternity with you. God, save me, rescue me. I believe what Jesus did on that Friday, it was for me. With heads still bowed and eyes still closed, listen, if you prayed that prayer, do me a favor and just look up at me all around the room. If you prayed that, I'm not gonna ask you to come up here and do anything weird. We just look up at me if you prayed that. Here's all I want you to do before you leave, okay? Inside your handout, there's a card in there. And it has a place for you to write your name and to check a box that says, today I pray to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. I would love to just invite you to check that box, put your name on it. And before you leave, our help center, which is to my left, to your right, under the overhang, if you'll just go give it to one of our people serving there, man, we just want to be able to pray for you by name from this point forward. And we want to be able to put some resources in your hands, a book, a Bible before you go to help you get started in your new relationship with Christ. So don't leave at the end of the service without doing that. And I'll remind you again before you go. God, for the rest of us in here that know you, God, for our new brothers and sisters in Christ who prayed this morning, God, we want to celebrate you today. God, we want to be so thankful today and grateful of what you've accomplished for us through Jesus. God, as we sing, we pray that you'd be honored, you'd be glorified, you'd be exalted in this place. So God, would you just show up, God? We want your presence to fall. We want your Holy Spirit to move in power. God, send us out of this room different people than when we walked in and we trust you for that. Lord, we love you and we pray all these things in the powerful, life-giving, life-changing name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Church, I want to invite you to stand. We're going to worship together and celebrate all that God has done for us. Matt, lead us, brother.